Salam and welcome back everybody to our podcast, Unapologetic, The Third Narrative. Our original and authentic initiative in light of the war in Israel and Gaza. A platform where we will share our identities, views and experience from the ground. Ibrahim, it's weird to have this uh, conversation on Zoom for the first time. I can't say I'm a fan. Yeah, no, it's not my favorite either, but uh, we wanted to bring, we wanted to do this because we have a very, very special guest that we wanted to have on the on the podcast. And we, we've been getting a lot of messages from our, you know, listeners that they want to hear other voices. And we were thinking a lot about who should be the first voice that comes out, that, that we um, bring into our podcast. And, uh, you know, because of some of the questions that we got in the past about, you know, uh, insinuating that we're somewhat of a sole voice. I think it's important to uh, show that we're not a sole voice at all. There are others who are doing this. And one of the most special people who are doing this is uh, Hamza Awaldi, and he is uh, currently abroad. So it's the only way to uh, bring him into this uh, platform was doing it uh, online. But uh, ironically, even if he were here, even if he were here, it would be difficult to meet with him uh, yeah. because he is from uh, the occupied Palestinian territories. He's from originally from Hebron, uh, lived his fair share life. And we're going to hear in a minute um, in, in Ramallah and other, other parts of the West Bank. Um, and he's also a good friend uh, of ours. So it's it's an honor to to have a, a, an actual like uncensored conversation with him. So without further ado, we are going to talk to Hamza Wawde, a peace activist, a Palestinian peace activist who um, worked previously with various uh, with various institutions and peace organizations, most recently um, Hands of Peace, um, which unfortunately had to close its doors um, after after the tragic events and the ongoing war. Um, and it's going to be, I'm, I'm looking forward to this, uh, to this conversation. And yeah, without further ado, let's uh, bring in Hamze. Hamze, thank you so much for, for joining us. I know it's, uh, we've been trying to, to organize this, uh, since a very long time and we're very honored to, to talk to you today. How's it going? Thank you guys. Uh, it's going well. Uh, thanks for this, uh, um, genius initiative to be part of it. Thank you. So we're honored that we have you here. Hamza, you are our first guest. Um, we've seen that you've taken the initiative to to start being into the spotlight, sharing your sharing your experience living in the West Bank, sharing sharing a little bit of hope, talking about talking about your son and how a peaceful solution has to be achieved in order to stop the cycle of violence and trauma that we're in on the Palestinian and on the Israeli side. So we're honored to have you as our first guest here, and we plan to have a series of uh, of inviting people from different scopes of life and different backgrounds and experiences to to share with us. So can you can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who who is Hamza Awadeh? Sure. Thanks, Amira, and thanks for having him. Um, I was born in a town called Dura. It's in southwest of Hebron. I lived uh, under uh, the occupation, uh, was born the first Intifada. Intifada is the Palestinian uprising. Um, I lived also when the PA was established and the second Intifada. 
I lived an average Palestinian um, trauma, Palestinian, uh, you know, struggle under the occupation. Um, I have to say many have had it worse than me. Many had it better than me. Uh, Palestinian stories are different. Um, I grew up and I didn't uh, accept the reality I live in. Um, my options were, you know, either to fight um, under Fatah or Hamas or, you know, Lone Wolf, or, you know, whatever familiar was for, for any Palestinian, because it's it's not natural for a Palestinian to, to be, you know, bystander because reality hits you every day. Um, I was lucky in a gradual way to be introduced to the peace work and um, I took part in it. I I grew in it in the past uh, 12 years. Um, I The reason I do it because I really don't see hope and I think um, it's up to us to create the hope. Um, I mean, if there was hope, we could go and have fun and you know, wait for it. But it's really a dire situation, uh, very scary, and the prospect is not promising unless every one of us honestly does their best for, for, for themselves. I mean, I'm very selfish about it. It's I want my future and my family future and my son future to be better than the past. And uh, I think this doesn't threaten anyone and aligns with many, many uh, average Palestinians and Israelis. So we t I try to, you know, organize, um, open eyes, uh, you know, use this uh, crisis to, as a wake up call to do things different. So um, when you say, and it's actually very interesting that you said, uh, you know, you uh, lived the average Palestinian uh, occupation uh, suffering. And, you know, there is uh, people who had it worse, some people who had it better. But uh, can you define to our listeners what is the average life of a Palestinian struggling under occupation? What 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 was that reality to you? Like in your eyes, what was the that was going to be living? I was going to ask the same question, honestly. I was going to say, like, I was going to ask it in a way of, like, what's your first interaction or what's the highlight of your interaction with the with the occupation as a kid? Like, what's the first memory? What's But exactly what Ibrahim said, like, uh, what's the average Palestinian uh, uh, trauma? What's the collect average Palestinian collective trauma? Walk us through uh, <laughs> You know, uh, when I uh, try to remember my childhood, um, I remember soldiers walking in the house in the morning, in the evening, uh, at any at any minute, uh, to check the house, to to question my father, uh, to you know check the neighbor house. Um, there were there were a lot of tear gas because first intifada was very populist. Everyone participated in the first intifada, so each neighborhood was um, clashing point, and. The same, our neighborhood was clashing point, especially we were surrounded by schools and the, the students uh, participated actively in the Intifada. So the army was coming on daily basis to clash with them and the rest people. And I remember um, soldiers in civilian clothes, um, you know, come out from nowhere and taking uh, the guys and, you know, taking them away. Um, 
I remember once uh, there was a group of men who asked me to show them where's the mosque. Uh, I wanted to show them and go with them to show them the mosque. Uh, but I felt lazy. And then it turned out that this this group of, of guys, actually soldiers, were going to the mosque to arrest someone. And I, I feel so um, proud of myself for being lazy and not going with them because I could have been, you know, in that um, in that very dangerous situation as a as a child. Um, we I never as a child left my town. Um, it was not safe. Uh, it was not uh, something people did. People wouldn't take risks. People living survival mood. Even though my family had money, but uh, you know. Money was not the issue, it's just like the mindset that you don't know what will happen tomorrow. Everything, it can go either direction. Um, we just, you know, stayed in our neighborhood school back home. Um, there was, you know, a neighbor who was collaborator with the Israeli army. And one, one night, soldier, uh, not so, like Palestinian activists shot at his house. And I woke up in the night and then the army came. and. Um, I remember my nightmares were about soldiers coming to kill us. Uh, like whenever I had fever and and I would wow. have a nightmare, it would be around the Israeli army coming to kill us. Um, I remember the Hebron, uh, like Abrahamic Mosque uh, in Hebron massacre. I remember hearing stories about it and imagining it as a child, as someone, you know, butchering people. It's not what happened, someone shot people, but like the way I understood it, that someone came and cut all the people in the mosque. Um, you know, I was not physically hurt. Uh, at that time, none of my uh, family members uh, were hurt. Um, so some people, you know, lost family members. Some people, um, I don't know, had their houses demolished. Some people were arrested even as children themselves. Um, I I could I can imagine that some in other cities maybe people had you know some more fun in their life uh, maybe you know they had places uh, parks to go to play and things like this but in my area it was nothing like that and then can the you, can, can you tell us a little bit more about that I'm I'm also like my origins are are from Hebron both my mom and my dad are from Hebron originally um, but like you said Palestinian experience isn't all the same because um, my um, my family's uh, like grandparents came to, to Jerusalem and stayed there. So my experience is a Jerusalem experience. And even though I say that I'm from Hebron, I don't know what a day-to-day -day living life. And I assume our, our our viewers and listeners also don't know what that what does that mean. Why is it why is it why is Hebron significant? Uh, it's different from Ramallah. It's different from uh, it's its own it's its own case. Can you can you explain a little bit about that about your experience as a kid and also as an adult? You still have family there. Yeah. So I guess uh, Hebron is. Um... Like it's one of the biggest Palestinian cities. Um, it has um, one of the highest populations, probably now in the West Bank at least. It has the highest population. Um, it is. It has in the old city um, small Jewish community um, that you know came back after nineteen twenty nine. Before before nineteen twenty nine, there were 
indigenous uh, Jewish uh, community there that were massacred um, by Palestinians, by certain Palestinian group. And the Jews came back. Um, unfortunately, it created a lot of tension in the, in the old city. And at that time, there were like maybe 300, 400 Jewish settlers living in a city of at least half a million. And, uh, and uh, you know, all the lives of people there were um, limited to create safety for these few hundreds living in the, in the center of the city. Um, the city um, is more religious than other cities. Uh, I don't know why in particular this happened, but um, it, it turned out this way. Um, it was a, like a strong city for uh, Hamas, um, I think because of the religious element. Um, other political parties were more uh, prominent in other Palestinian cities. And also in the town, in the villages adjusted to Hebron, um, Fatah is more powerful uh, and has more popularity always. But in the city of Hebron itself, Hamas has been more uh, appealing to people. Uh, people are in business, so much into business, um, trade and hard work. They, you know, they, they work hard. They, it's a stereotype. They, yeah, no, they really work hard. They don't. Uh, they, they they focus on the quantity of selling, mm -hmm. not on the uh, with a with a small margin of of profit. I think this is how they dominated the market in the West Bank. Um, maybe because of its location in the south. Usually, the south has a has a different mentality. You know, it's a city of also amazing food, uh, and um, you know. Uh, in a way, it was sometimes safer than the rest of the West Bank. So Janina, Nablus, and and the North were very active uh, in the first intifada, second intifada, while Hebron, for no apparent reason, was quiet. And sometimes the opposite. Um, it's very complicated to to understand why things turn this way. It's interesting, didn't you say that? Um, it was like kind of a, a hotspot for Hamas. It was like a scene for Hamas. It it had like Hamas appeal, and and sometimes really out of nowhere we would see attacks um, launched by activists from Hebron every single day, and sometimes for months or maybe years nothing happens in Hebron. I I really don't understand uh, if it's just natural, uh, like. Or, or someone wanted it this way, um, but it doesn't matter. I think what what matters that um, that Hebron is a very passionate city, very hardworking people. Um, it 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 created all kind of people. Uh, there are many Palestinian leaders historically from from Hebron, um, and you know they bring different uh, character to the to the table than people from other cities. Palestine and Palestinian cities are very diverse in, in every in every different way. I think this is a good transition. Ibrahim talks, and we, we talk a lot about um, what is Palestinian in uh, removed from, from a political uh, or a nationality or something, like as a peoplehood. Um, and Ibrahim explains it in, a, in his own personal way. I explain it in my own personal way. Um, 
what the, what's what does the Palestinian peoplehood mean mean to you? What the general, what's a Palestinian as a term? How, how do you yeah. view it? Do you view it as political peoplehood, a mix of both? Very good question. <laughs> uh, um, you know, uh, with what we what with the reality we have, Palestinian, whether they like it or not, they are linked to the to the cause. Uh, you can't separate yourself from the cause. Like wherever I go. And I introduced myself as Palestinian. We start talking politics, like any restaurant, any cafe, in the bus, in the train, um, with the in the police. Uh, you know, if the police stops you, uh, you have always to behave like a Palestinian, uh, like whether you like it or not. Like the the reality forces you because this is one of the oldest conflicts in the world. It's extremely popular, and people have opinions about it. So um, when you say Palestinian, no one will ask you, you know, uh, how was your day? They will <laughs> immediately ask you about the conflict. So uh, in a way, um, we are first to, 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 you know, present ourselves in a political way. And it's not fun. I, I, I wish like there would be a day when you are just, when you say I'm Palestinian, it's like saying I'm Italian or I'm American, or, but it's, it's not this, practically it's not this way. Uh, also when you're in Palestine, you know, uh, as a Palestinian, you are legally defined. Uh, if you are a Palestinian resident of the West Bank, you have certain legal, um, you know, limitation. If you are a Palestinian uh, resident of Jerusalem, you have other kind of, of legal uh, definition. And also Palestinian citizens of Israel have a, have a, have a different reality. Uh, and this reflects in the way you live, in the um, in the choices you make, uh, in who you, who you marry, who like it defines everything. Um, I have to say, like over the years, uh, the Palestinian um, culture and the Palestinian, you know, art have have been um, you know slowly going down. Like uh, the Palestinian uh, uh, art and culture. Before 1948, Nakba was richer, and it it, it stayed rich, and but was going uh, slowly uh, down uh, because of uh, of the occupation, because of the division of the people. Like, uh, and you know, Dura is like 40 minutes from from Gaza. I never been to Gaza, and 99 percent comma nine like of, of the people of Gaza never been to to Dura. So there's no this cultural connection. And um, and the, the life of survivalhood uh, doesn't give uh, the luxury of uh, you know flourishing uh, culture and uh, art and uh, in the contrary in the diaspora you know there has been like strong you know art and uh, uh, you know poetry and um, literature written by Palestinians in the in the diaspora. That's true. Yeah. Now that you say it, it's true. Yeah, and. Uh, it is, uh, I don't know, like, it is um, sad that Palestinians have been um, dimensioned to the conflict. Uh, and, you know, it's so long this conflict that uh, I'm worried it became part of our DNA. You know? <laughs> like, it will take years to recover from that. But And, and you know, like, um, it's very interesting what you're saying about the division and not being able to, uh, you know... Uh, meet each other. I personally remember that the first time I, I ever like truly like, you know, uh, 
sat down with people from the West Bank, it was when I was in the U.S., not even here. Uh, I was in the U.S. in high school on a scholarship that they took, you know, kids from across the Middle East to go and study for one year. And that's the first time I sat down with, uh, you know, people from the West Bank and Gaza. It was just uh, all of us were there and they, we were there with us as, as they're 48 and, uh, you know, trying like for the first time to be really exposed to the differences of our identity, our upbringing. But, uh, you know, I wonder if is that maybe part of the reason why we see a little bit of division within the Palestinian identity. Like my personal feeling is that we as a, as a peoplehood, we're a peoplehood, but we haven't um, formulated or, or, you know, been able to uh, decide sort of, you know, what's our um, culture uh, or, you know, uh, how the life that we want to lead as a community would be. It's like, especially with, you know, uh, at a time where the the Western media and things like this, you know, affect our uh, more traditional society. So you want to try to balance between, you know, how you're being uh, exposed to other uh, cultures from the West and balance it with your one here. But it seems like we haven't been, you know, um, uh, haven't really sat down, uh, you know, uh, among ourselves in a way and like decide how this uh, culture will flourish uh, further. Do you think it's, like partially because we're divided, because we don't meet that well, because people don't see each other's reality? Yeah, absolutely, Ibrahim. I think um, the fragmentation of, of the Palestinian society, uh, not only uh, like Gaza, West Bank, and uh, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, but even inside the West Bank. And you, saw, you also have the Palestinian diaspora, we don't meet. We don't interact. Um, it's uh, it's really necessary for society uh, for for people to you know create a united identity and united political views and united culture. Um, they have to meet. They have to have this interaction. Palestinians who live in Ramallah nowadays, uh, they almost never ever you know go outside Ramallah and spend a long time like they. It's small bubbles, you know, the, the people of Hebron uh, just interact with people of Hebron, the people of, even on the village level sometimes, it's because of the conflict, because of the checkpoints, because of the um, uncertainty, uh, the survival mode. Uh, and I think it was engineered this way, it didn't happen um, by coincidence. It is part of the... Um, uh, strategy to control the Palestinians and uh, limit uh, their threat is to keep them divided, which is very narrow-minded uh, vision and short-sighted because um, we see now uh, most of the attacks are lone wolf, which are harder to control. Um, Gaza is is acting on its own, their, their own. And, you know, we can show solidarity but you know, there's no united front. There's no one door to to knock and uh, make a deal with, uh, as it used to be in the past. You know, you could talk to Arafat, and then you have a peace agreement, you have a ceasefire, whatever. But now, you know, it's really way um, complicated. So. You know, when you touched upon it a little bit earlier, you were saying how, you know, Hebron is more, uh, it had more popularity for Hamas 
Uh, some cities are uh, Fatah is more popular and it's like sort of kind of divided two towns and which uh, one of the two uh, political uh, slash, um, you know, resistant movements were, um, uh, were residing. And first of all, uh, you know, it, that was also even before the division that we have today of, uh, you know, Hamas is in Gaza and... Uh, and the, the, the Fatah and the PA is in uh, in the West Bank. Um, just out of curiosity, how were you, as Hamza, were introduced to these two terminologies, identities, uh, political visions, uh, paths of resistance of Fatah versus Hamas? How where 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 did you hear about them first? How were you introduced to them? Uh, how did they influence also maybe uh, you know? Uh, life in the school, because Amira touched upon it before uh, in one of our episodes, how it's also part of the university movements. So how were you introduced to that and how, do you, how did you deal with it? Very good question. <laughs> so I, as a child, you know, it was when I, when I became conscious and, you know, understanding the news and what's going on, we already had Hamas and Hamas was, uh, you know, doing the suicide bombing attacks and Fatah was the, um, the Palestinian Authority. So I knew that uh, Hamas are the real fighters and the Palestinian Authority are uh, Fatah and they're corrupt and, you know, they care only about their interests. Very simple child way of uh, seeing white and black. Uh, because, you know, even though Oslo happened and the Palestinian Authority started to to you know, to raise the Palestinian flag and have some control over the West Bank, we still were under the occupation. Uh, so it made sense for me that someone is fighting and the one who were fighting are the good guys, the, the strong guys. Uh, and, you know, they were religious and I was religious as a child. So, yeah, so they are religious and fighters, you know, it's so good. <laughs> uh, and Fatah, you know, because, you know, they were taking you know, first experience of governance, and it's always messy to to first time. Uh, they were doing so many mistakes, so many mistakes internally, externally, corruption. Uh, so it didn't look uh, good. But um, during the second intifada, and as, as I became a teenager, I started understanding the complexity, uh, also reading uh, opinion uh, articles in Arabic and in, in English. Um, I understood that, uh, you know, uh, Fatah is a populist movement. Uh, they make mistakes. Uh, they suffer from the disease of, of any political movement in the world. There's no perfect uh, political movement. Um, also, the transition from uh, fighters to, to governance uh, is not easy, especially in this weird situation. We didn't get into independence. We... They, they became governing body, but they're still under occupation. So it's very uncomfortable situation uh, for them and corrupted them deeply. And Hamas um, is uh, extremely uh, short-sighted. Uh, they have vision, they have passion. And I have to say, like, Hamas members are the most passionate, uh, dedicated people. I like, they really, you know, into it, but um, it's not something I wish uh, for my future. Uh, 
you know, I, I don't think I deserve Hamas to, to I mean, I, I, I all my life dream to live free from the Israeli occupation and uh, the control of the Israeli army and uh, the Israeli ra radical politics, not to end up with Palestinian radical politics. Uh, so in the university, you know, uh, actually when I started my peace work, uh, I had the, these options and also there's the public front, uh, which also, you know, it's a communist uh, leftist ideology, but. What do you mean by you had these options? As a, um, as a student in the university, uh, there's a student, uh, you know, uh, activism, uh, usually around um, student rights, but organized politically. So there is the, the, the Fatah um, student uh, arm, and there's Hamas and public front. And usually students choose uh, where to be active. The majority in my university at my time were not active in, in any of these uh, groups. But which university are we talking about? Birzeit University. In Birzeit. And it's, you know, it's so ironic that, you know, when you go to uh, universities in the uh, U.S. and, su and such, uh, mainly the clubs on campus are a lot more social. You know, uh, you have an Arabic club, a uh, Chinese club, uh, this club, uh, um, you know, it, and it can vary even on different topics. And here in university, Palestinian university, the the clubs are political uh, you're joining one of the political movements yeah it, it is it is the reality it's uh i think it's it's a natural reaction to the reality uh and in the past these um these political student groups were very active and very cultural uh nowadays it's just to show uh who's more popular so I think uh, just uh, engaging the very populist um, uh, campaigns inside the, the university to appear to a larger group of people, but from inside they're really empty. They don't have any content or anything to offer to the students or to the political uh, culture. So um, I didn't buy any of these uh, ideas, uh, but still, you know, I wanted to be active uh, politically. And then I, I got introduced to, to the peace work. It, it was like proactively an initiative uh, I did. I I was, you know, uh, looking for any group of Israelis and Palestinians um, activists, just out of curiosity. I wanted to see who are these Israelis when they're not soldiers and when they're not settlers. Like I, I had the expectations that they are doctors, uh, nurses, that they uh, they have their own problems, also not the conflict, but I wanted to to see that. And uh, when I met um, the first uh, like group of Israelis and Palestinians, uh, it was it was okay. It was like a real group of people, like uh, Israelis and Palestinians. You can see the division. You can see that uh, almost they disagree about everything. Uh, but they still, you know, meet and listen to each other and trying to push each other limit uh, on how to, okay, move forward, what to do together for the future. We don't care about the past. We don't think, sometimes they agree, like sometimes on some issues, some people agree, but actually what kept them together was about the future, what to do in the future, but also realizing that they are minority of people and that they're, um, power to influence what's happening um, 
it's really limited. But I saw that this is an area to explore, an area um, of potential uh, meaningful activism. So I know we're, we're shifting a little bit towards talking about your piecework, but um, I wanna like take us a, like two steps back because there's a lot of, um, especially right now, it's always, it's always a comment, but especially right now, it's coming out that um, schools teach Palestinians to hate. Schools teach like the education system in Palestine. Um, I think I went through a different, like it, it was also the Palestinian uh, Palestinian education system, but it was in Jerusalem. So um, it, I don't think it was the exact, the exact same. Um, can you, is it like, can you talk about that through your, your own experience? Um, um, like it goes, it goes to an extent to that people that are anti anti Palestinian or people who are pro Israel are um, saying that inside classrooms students are, t are are taught how to kill Jews that that's the aim of their lives um, even even like math problems would be like you have five stones and there are ten Jews how many like this kind of stuff this is what's actually been talking about these aren't my words this is can, this can be found on Twitter and all over the internet. Um, so you have, you have a young son. What's his name? Thaed. So you have a young son, you have Thaed. Um, uh, I'm sure he went to, uh, to, to school in the West Bank for a little bit. Um, and you also went and had your fair share, um, of experience in the education system. What, what do you have to say? Either praise, criticism, an opinion. Uh, I will start answering this by talking about Thaed and then about my experience. So their okay. school in Ramallah, they don't teach religion, they don't teach politics. Like um, it's a it's a decision by the school and the, the families not to talk you about move, the... you moved from, from Hebron to Ramallah, yeah? Yes. So I I, I live now um, in the past uh, since I went to university, I lived in Ramallah. And uh, my son uh, went to kindergarten and school in Ramallah, and uh, their school. Um, it's very diverse. Uh, it has Christian families, Muslim families, also international, uh, um, like expats children. And the, the decision was from the parents, the council, um, for I don't know why, not to talk about religion, not to talk about politics inside the school. Still, uh, you know, my son, one, one day came and said, the Jews uh, killed... Um, this girl today near my school. And it was a story that a girl was killed in Betunia in Ramallah. So in the same day, he, he, he went to school, he learned from other kids about it. And it was framed that Jews killed, uh, killed uh, this girl. So uh, in a child's mind, that the Jews are killing our people, you know? This is how they see it. How did you uh, deal with that when he came to you with that? So I had to explain that Jews and Israel are different and that we should always separate people from their governments. You know, even, even if, if it's democracy, whatever, I mean, we, have, we can discuss if it's a democracy or not, but even if it's democracy, we have to separate people from, from their governments. And Israel is, doesn't mean Jewish. Uh, Israel is a political entity. Uh, it's related to Zionism and whatever, but when you say, Jews 
you are talking about people and the, the Jewish people are not responsible of killing this girl. Um, but I couldn't deny that Israel has Israel killed a girl. You know, she was in a car and they shot the soldier shot at the car, and this girl got killed. And this child understood that there is a foreign entity that killed fellow Palestinian, that he also could be that girl one day. And he has the anger and the rage. Uh, I tried to do damage control and, you know, but Israel, not Jews and stuff like this. But, you know, at first I was glad that he talked to me about it because imagine if he kept it in his mind and, uh, and you know, small, small seeds of hate becomes bigger. But is it the school to blame or is it... Or, is it like how can you live in under the occupation and not and like protect yourself from it? Is it realistic? I mean, no Palestinian deserves to hate because hate is self-destruction. And I myself tried to liberate myself from from all the hate I, I drank from the reality and the hate I get tempted tempted to to acquire. But honestly, it's not it's not a natural thing. The natural thing that people will hate. Uh, it's it's uh, the reality is radical. The reality is uh, the reality to blame. That hate is an outcome of the reality. And talking about the schools in my school, so when I went to the school, uh, we had so the Palestinian Authority started to run the schools. We had a book that talk about uh, nationalism. And in this book, it talks about it. It spoke about you know who are yes Arafat is who, what's the Palestinian Liberation Movement the Nakba, Oslo Agreement, and all of that. But then the donors, like the EU, the Americans, I don't know what, they banned this book. Like they, they pushed the Palestinian Authority to remove this book from the curriculum, and they did. And then what happened is that we don't have a unified narrative in the schools. Every teacher does whatever they think um, is the right narrative. Uh, in informal way, like it's a personal initiative. So if the teacher happened to be uh, Hamas affiliated, they will tell you how Hamas see the conflict. If it's um, if he's a public front or Fatah or independent, every teacher says whatever they, they believe um, in informal way, because there's no formal class for this. There's no uh, curriculum from the Ministry of Education about um, about the conflict in general. And um, and but, but again, this is like one percent of your experience as as a as a Palestinian student. Because then you go home, and you see the news, and you go to the street, and you hear stories, and you most likely have close family member who have been either killed, or arrested, or I don't know, uh, banned from traveling, or uh, refused to get permit to go to hospital. So you don't really need anyone to teach you hate. Like the reality can do a good job to teach you, teach anyone hate. Like, and I always, I always ask uh, Israelis that I mean, what would you um, grow up thinking about Israel if you grew up under the occupation? And actually, I once asked the Israeli officer uh, about Gaza. What, because he served uh, on the Gaza border, what would you do uh, if you were born in Gaza? And he told me like once he was looking through sniper at Hamas, um, Hamas uh, 
like um, activist. And he thought if he was born in Gaza, he would be that activist. Um, so it's the reality. And uh, we blame people and we blame schools and we because we don't want to, you know, tackle the root causes of everything. You it's know, more yes, please. Yeah, yeah I said it's more convenient to, to, you know, to go to the symptoms, to blame uh, schools, to blame everyone. We can blame, you know, the, the temperature of the room. We can, we can blame everything. But I think if we're really um, into solving the issues, we have to go to the root causes. And then if people hit, it's a hit out of, of, to, out of luxury, out of uh, intellectual activity, and then we can condemn them. But we can't, uh, we can't um, you know, sanction people for hitting when the reality is, um, is radical. You know, it's I'm so just funny. Gonna, I'm going to just to clarify something, because I don't want our listeners to uh, be confused or take a, take a stance. Um, you called them Hamas activists. Is there a specific reason why you called that specific? Because you called them before like a governmental entity, you called them movement, you called this. Is there a specific reason why you choose these words? Or is it? Uh, I think this is the the objective because people have different opinions about Hamas. Uh, uh, for most of international, uh, international uh, bodies, they call them terrorist um, members of terrorist organization. For Palestinians, they are freedom fighters. And uh, the neutral term is Hamas activist. And the, you know, the audience are, you know, they can look up information and definitions and actions and and, and decide. Um, the same I define the Israeli army, not the Israeli um, defense forces, because this is the Israeli term. And for the Palestinians, it's, um, the Zionist army or like the occupation army, whatever. I just call it the Israeli army. And it's up to you how you define it. Like, uh... Yeah, it's funny. It's like uh, in the Israeli term, it's IDF. In the Palestinian term, it's IOF. Yeah. It's your occupational forces. Uh, it's a term that is used within uh, Palestinian terminologies. But you know, it's so interesting when you talk about um, uh, teachers, uh, you know, uh, taking the the decision alone to, uh, you know, portray their own uh, perception of uh, identity and conflict. And actually, it's it's something we have in common, because uh, for us um, living inside Israel, we also have, uh, you know, our own education system, but it's, of course, Israeli one. So we're also not taught about uh, Nekbe in that sense. We're not taught about, like, uh, taught about um, our experience as a people, what's our peoplehood. And it's not part of the education system. So, you know, I remember my teacher and um, I think it was history class. And he just like asks us, you know, each one, how do you define yourself? And each one would say it in a different way. Like one person would say first Arab and then Palestinian and then maybe their religion, like Arab, mm -hmm. Palestinian, Muslim. And then one person would say Palestinian, Muslim, Arab, or then Palestinian, Arab, Israeli citizen. Or, and each person would have, you know, different layers of where the identity uh, lies and then the teacher at the end is like no at the end we're all Palestinian and this is why and it was his personal uh interpretation and you know giving us um he gave um, you the room just to tell you that you're wrong <laughs> maybe I mean he also wanted to emphasize how our identity is so you know uh 
uh, confused. It's part of our ch challenge to to live in a society that has identity crisis because we live inside Israel. But it's it's fascinating to me that a similar experience also happens inside the Palestinian education system. That even there, there's also that identity crisis. It's not just for us because we live in, inside Israel. Yeah, you know, but, but this is all like um, the 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 Israeli lobby and uh, the international community wanted to strip the Palestinian Authority from its national identity. Actually, for the Israelis, uh, it's called the Palestinian Authority. But for Palestinians, it's the Palestinian National Authority. But even this term is, is is you know, uh, there's conflict about it. Thinking, you know, once you take from them the national card, um, people will not be nationalist. But what happens, there's a vacuum. And will be filled by Hamas, will be filled by other ideologies. And you also empty the Palestinian Authority from, from its national uh, component and become irrelevant. And then other actors become more relevant. So it's really self-defeating um, military mindset that in the, sh in the long run, uh, it brings bad consequences. Yeah, we see it time and time again. Like it's the same, it's the same cycle. We see yeah. the same attempt with the same intention um, to remove the, the national aspect. And then it's like filled the void that you're talking, the vacuum that you're talking about is is filled with other entities that then in the future become also a threat and then need to be removed. So um, it's uh, it's definitely a different scope from what we're used to, uh, like listening on to the news. It's like a long term kind of scope of vision. Um, maybe let's go back to uh, to your piece work. Um, <clears throat> so this is a question that we mean Ibrahim talked about last episode on usually people like ask the question of was there a moment in time when you shifted your way of thinking into a more peaceful one um as if all palestinians think the same way and are raised on hate and vengeance their entire lives and then there's something that makes them shift so i want to ask it in a different way i want to ask you um how was your experience uh because i'm sure there's not like one specific thing um, how, uh, what was your journey towards actively deciding to take up peace work as your career and not just something that you think about, but your, your actual career? I, I want first to define peace work for me. Peace work for me is, is a work of liberation because many, uh, people, especially, um, in the outside of Israel, Palestine think that, um, to become peace activist is to become neutral, is to accept and surrender to the reality. This is, uh, you know, surrendering. This is not being peaceful. And this is very unauthentic. No one under the occupation would honestly be neutral, like it doesn't exist. But um, I, I saw the peace work as a way of liberation to liberate myself from all the limitations of the occupation, especially psychologically and uh, mentally. Um, and also to liberate uh, or to contribute in the process of liberating the Israelis from, from their position as oppressor and as occupier. So in this way, you don't see like a shifting moment. It's just um, gradual uh, progression in, 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 the, in the work of liberation. At some point, Palestinians had to use violence. Like after the Nakba. Uh, Palestinians were limited to issues of humanitarian aid and uh, they were not seen as people. No one was calling them Palestinians, even as a term, even in the Arab countries, you know. 
Um, so Palestinians had to use violence to, to be seen by, by the world. And then the PLO um, shifted to non-violence non and uh, signed the Oslo Agreement and, and, and uh, you know, became part of the political process with, with Israel. Uh, I didn't see um, that going back to violence was necessary, also not moral, also, um, you know, not strategic, but was not necessary. Palestinians could, uh, you know, now go to level three of fighting through joint, uh, how we call it, like joint actions with elements of the Israeli society who their future also depend on the Palestinian future because we're also always fighting internal uh, war and also the war with, with, with the other side. Uh, like la last week, an Israeli friend of mine said, if, if Israel went, I will not want to live in, in, in Israel because it will be Smutrich and Ben Gavir and, and all these uh, guys. And if Palestine went, like the way Palestine now uh, as Hamas is the leading actor, I wouldn't want to live in Palestine. So peace work is, is really very nationalist, very um, uh, freedom-seeking work where you are trying to raise the moderates in your society, also raise the moderates in, in the other society, and help each other, strategize to each other, because our future is linked to, to each other. And in, in this land, there are equal uh, number of Jews and Palestinians, and they have nowhere else to go. Uh, all the fantasies about people, uh, you know, going to Egypt or going back to Europe, or uh, it's very unrealistic scenarios. Um, so for me, it really was no, like, no, like, moment. Of course, there was ups and downs, like, I, I have seen this is my way and my strategic way. And of course, every time I met an inspiring example from the Israeli society, I became more enthusiastic and more active and more. And sometimes I would meet the wrong example and then I become discouraged. So it's up, ups and downs, uh, but there's no moment and uh, we shouldn't make it uh, sound so romantic that people, you know, uh, love from the first sight or something like this doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, or this pivotal moment that you know, it just uh, uh, you woke up one day and you have a, an epiphany and you realize that you know this is uh, not the way the world should uh, work, and then you decide to shift your views and you do something else, and you know, uh, it's a lot more complex and a lot more you know heavily layered than that. Um, and this, I guess it's just also, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just uh, it, it's a it's a journey to yeah. uh, you know to discover and see what are the best ways forward and uh, like it, and it's something that we even as you know within the peace building community we we also try to see other ways that we can do things and you know different strategies and different uh, paths that we can take. There's no one p path for the peace activist to to take. There are different routes, and uh, it's like something that you also throughout your life try to figure out what path within the peace world you want to take, how to approach peace. And like you said, uh, you know, for some, um, and it's it would sound like a, a surrender if you just, uh, you know, just accept your position and just say, this is the life. It is more about freeing yourself and accepting the other side want to be free alongside you. Exactly. And I guess, yeah. It yeah. 
yeah, you know, even in the peace work, uh, there's different understanding what peace means uh, because it's also a field that is progressing and it's uh, developing. Uh, so there are a lot of problems and some some people uh, see themselves, you know, as accepting the situation and some people, you know, they see it as a way of liberation. So again, it's very diverse people and they're very diverse group. And uh, I always think we shouldn't, you know, attack one style or another. I disagree with many of these initiatives and these uh, models, but you know, everyone is, is trying their best. And uh, if you don't like it, maybe don't participate in this particular activity and this, this particular paradigm, uh, but don't undermine, don't undermine it because we change also ourselves. Like things that seem naive and seem stupid nowadays, you know, might seem uh, relevant and smart. Yeah, yeah it's part of the human experience. You can't yeah. stay like I like sometimes people show like here's this peace activist, but look how they used to be. This is what they they quote them and whatever. What do you expect? Like if like are we supposed are we expected to stay with the same mindset our entire lives? That's what growth is. That is what growth is. That's what's learning, educating yourself. There's something that you didn't know and you used to act upon ignorance, and then you grew, and then you act upon knowledge. So. Yeah, there's one point that, uh, you know, uh, Hamza, you just mentioned, and this is something that's also related. Uh, you know, me and Amira feel, I think uh, we both relate very much to what you just said about there are different ways of doing activism and working towards, you know, the best interest of your people. And so one of the problems that we see is, uh, you know, uh, ostracizing uh, people for uh, using a different, a specific path that you disagree with. And our main issue with that is, you know, we're not doing something to harm our people. And that's sometimes the perception is that, oh, you're you're doing the, the peace work. So you gave up, like you mentioned. And, you know, one of the perceptions of peace is, is giving up. But it's not. It's, it's looking for a better life for our people in the way that we see should be the path for our people to move forward. Maybe some people will disagree with that, but don't judge it because at least we're trying the best for our people. So you can disagree with us, but don't judge us. Don't, you know... Uh... Don't try to actively prevent it. Exactly. Yeah. You can take your own path, but let us take our own and to each his own. To If we're all at the end of the day have our best, uh, our people's best interests at heart, that should be the, you know, the key component and not the way that we're, we're, we're striving for it. It's, it's first to look at our people's best interests. And if we see it in that peaceful way, let us do our work and you can do your own thing, but we will continue regardless of what you think. I, no, I totally agree. It's uh, actually a global issue. The cancel culture, it's, it's terrible. Like once mm -hmm. they start disagreeing with you, this you don't exist, you're invisible. Like you, they cancel, like they cancel all your existence. Um, and I think uh, diversity is, is important. Diversity is smart uh and we should believe people have good intention we should allow all voices to be on the table and people to try their best uh, it's it's very hard to accept other opinions it's very hard to um think that maybe the the other group has a point but it's a it's a work that uh, we should do as activists uh, should force ourselves to to open our minds and open our hearts 
but but I see it like uh, all the way like uh, especially uh, before this war uh, you you almost in your own bubble because every everyone outside your bubble if they know what you are doing they they attack you they not only like there was a time when they just don't like what you are doing but in the recent years they don't want you to do what you are doing like as if it's against them even though you're doing something irrelevant to their life they want to stop you from doing it because you're not doing what they think is right and either you are active in the way they, they see it uh, correct or you shouldn't do anything um, and i hope in the, this war and this catastrophe that we live will bring back um you know this diversity like we should uh, uh, free ourselves from from this uh, selfish uh, way of life where only my way is correct and others have no legitimacy. Uh, I, I hope now we can see, you know, more diversity. And I personally, you know, became more outspoken, uh, even though I know I will get attacks. And I think if more people uh, become, uh, you know, more outspoken, maybe we will force this diversity. Yeah, same. I, I agree with you. I think for, for me personally, after, and this is a very great and smooth transition to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the current situation, what's happening in Gaza, the 7th of October. Um, but I do think for me, it was like, it was a realization that safety is very relevant in our region of the world. Um, it's um, uh, relative, sorry, safety is very relative. Um, and um, I think to speak to speak up, like working towards peace in a in a very secure, um, hush hush, invisible manner, um, kind of does the Palestinian peace work a lot of harm because we don't have any loud activists for many reasons and understandable reasons because your fear for your safety on the Israeli side and on, from the Palestinian side as well. Um, so we um like we salute you for for everything that you're doing for taking a, a public stance for for starting to speak up uh for for talking like we we find that you are talking the same we we are talking unapologetically um so thank you for that and can you can you tell us a little bit about where were you on the 7th of October where were you on the 6th of October also can you can you tell us a little bit yeah, well, <laughs> um, yeah, so on the 7th of October, actually, I was in Dura. Uh, I realized, you know, my son never uh, slept over at uh, his grandmother uh, in Dura. And Dura is, is really 40 minutes from Gaza. So we were um, sleeping over and I woke up and my son also woke up with the sounds of Hamas rockets. Uh, until that point, we only knew that there are massive uh, rockets from Gaza. Um, I started checking the news and then slowly, slowly, I realized this is um, a bigger event than usual events. So I wanted to run back to Ramallah before it's too late because the Israeli army habit of collective punishment after everything, anything that would happen, you know, if there is an attack in Nablus or in, in Tel Aviv or all Palestinians, you know, get locked up and uh, closure, and and they didn't want to uh, be stuck in Dura, especially with my son uh, away from his mom who's in Ramallah. 
uh, and also as we were um, slowly, slowly understanding what's happening, and I, you know, even we were understanding only one percent what happened. It looked so huge. So I ran back to Ramallah. The way was as expected. Dura was under closure already. All the gates, because the army has gates on the entrances of Dura, these yellow gates, they, they close them immediately, um, like if people are sheep. So I took uh, like a farmer route uh, through the mountain. And then I joined the street number 60 highway. It was very empty. Um, I reached Ramallah. There were already clashes between the army and the Palestinians, but I made it back. And then I went to watch the news and I realized uh, um, the catastrophe. But uh, on October 5th, in the night of October 5th, actually, it was my third day uh, back from the US uh, after three months uh, doing peace work between um, Palestinian and Jewish teenagers in the US that, that we brought to the US. Uh, so I was away from my son for three months. And uh, when I came back, I took him for to play uh, in one uh, mall in Ramallah. In the, way, in the way back home, it was like maybe 7.30 p.m. We were driving in the street in the city of Ramallah. And uh, my son had his phone, uh, my phone and was uh, playing music. And out of nowhere, three soldiers jumped in front of the car, loaded their guns, and put their guns in, in, uh, in our heads. Uh, I, I, I started shouting, I, I turned off the car, and they kept the, the guns in our heads, and started saying in Hebrew, uh, turn off the motors, uh, throw away the key from the window, as if we were, you know, uh, a target, you know. Um, and then, uh, you know, he asked me to say loud my name, my ID number, I did. And then he was checking, but all the time the guns were in our heads. And then he was checking uh, somewhere, you know, with his uh, head of water. Uh, and then the soldier told me, I was going to shoot you. I told him, why? Uh, he said, you're not supposed to be in the street. I told him, how on earth I, I should know that I'm not supposed to be in this street? He said, we are here, you're not supposed to be here. See, you were hiding yourself, like how could I know? And then, you know, they start cleaning the guns because the bullets were already in the... And then I realized, you know, and this before October 7th, that things have reached a level where no lives matter, literally. Because these soldiers could have killed both of us, me and my son, and will be not, like not a significant event to anyone, you know, maybe just to my family. But uh, it's okay. Like uh, it has been normalized. Uh, maybe if it was caught on camera, uh, these soldiers would be interrogated, and maybe they will be suspended from their work. What a bad punishment, you know. Uh, but yeah, at that moment I was sure like that really this is such a miserable place to be like and then October 7th happened which also exposed how you know uh, rotten is the situation like there are so many problems everyone was living in denial everyone was uh, marching forward but ignoring every every uh, you know aspect of the problems that we have uh, you know, pre pretending that uh, Palestinians is not the issue, 
Incubation doesn't exist. Everyone believes, you know, their own way. Uh, everyone is ignoring the reality. And it was a reality hit. Uh, I, I left, uh, so like October 8, I managed to cross to Jordan with my son. And now we are in Italy. Um, the reason I did it uh, is I really morally didn't think it's good for my son to be in Palestine now, especially that he has the other option. Um, everyone in Palestine doesn't have the option to go somewhere else, but my son uh, happened to be a dual citizen. And I think that he has the option to be in a safe, healthy place. I should give it to him uh, because he's a child. Like he's, If he was an adult, he would choose for himself. But as a child, I think he should be safe. Um, and I am now active because I think this is our last chance to fix the reality there. If we don't do our best, honestly, now, like times when we were, you know, playing it safe, gone. The, um, this war, you know, one person of Gaza already dead, you know. Uh, all south of Israel was under occupation of Hamas for many, many, many hours. Everything we believed in should be questioned. You know, uh, the sustainability of the status quo has gone. Status quo doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the the radicals who we thought we never that they would never you know engage in in these atrocities, they are engaging in these atrocities and they are proud of it. Uh, the future, the future. If we don't do our best now to fix it, and we don't get the the help from our friends around the world to put the both people on the right track for a better future, we should give up. Like literally, like it, there's no hope. Yeah, um, it's what well, it happened on the the seventh of October. I feel like because we live in such a because our identities. Uh, are so intertwined and because we live in such a small area every every single person was affected and because it wasn't an actual um escalation like this time it wasn't an escalation it was something big that happened like this um like yes you talk about the like uh, that it doesn't didn't happen in a vacuum and we can talk about that and stress on that forever um but it did this time happen in a in a very different way that we're used to um um, and you are someone that has, um, like you work in piecework, you have someone you're connected, whether you like it or not to both, uh, to both people, to both sides. Um, did you reach out? Did someone reach out to you? Um, like how was the, I know everyone was in stress and everyone was in shock, but, uh, and you talk about your, your son, but what about you also? Um, did you, um, how did you receive, like, we're all still processing everything that happened, but how did you process it? How did you re receive the atrocities that were commit committed on October the 7th and then followed by a brutal, brutal collective punishment that you talked about and the what is called right now the Hamas-Israel war? Uh, you know, I was so lucky in my life. I never knew uh, what anxiety means because I've never been anxious, but then I knew what anxiety means. Like, yeah. My body was shaking for no, like I was just shaking, and my my breath was, you know, irregular. Uh, I was not sleeping. 
I realized after two days I haven't drank water and I'm a person who drink like water like 10 cups per minute you know like I'm, I'm really heavy water drinker um it's huge what happened it was huge because we were living in a lie like you know in 2021 there was a war in May 2021 and Bibi Netanyahu said we sent Hamas 50 years uh, backward and I follow Israeli journalism uh, in Twitter and also mainstream, and you see the, the experts on, on Palestine, and they speak about things, you know, even though I was, I never take them, you know, uh, as very accurate, but you know, you say there's some truth there. There's some, uh, yeah, of course, you know, that there's Hamas, Jihad conflict, that, you know, Hamas is interested in, 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 in money, like, you, 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 even because you hear it over and over, you believe it. Like, even as Palestinian, you believe it. And then October 7th happened, and you discover everything was lie. Everything was a lie. Like the image of the Israeli army as in charge and control and knows everything uh, was not actually true. That, um, that Hamas, uh, you know, cannot do what they, I mean if you told me Hamas would ever be able to do what they're doing in, in terms of uh, uh, actions and morality I would have doubted that and then you see that they have broke one if not the most uh, secured border in the world after being 17 years under uh, siege and once they had the opportunity of power the they did so many atrocities, so many atrocities with like cold, cold heart, you know, uh, killing people, um, you know, as if, uh, as you know, you want to, this is your moment to revenge for, you know, 75 years and you do it on civilians and soldiers, who, whoever you meet there and you, you put all your rage on them um, in a very barbaric way. Um, burning houses, like everything, everything happened that day, which is not surprising, but sad, you know, it's sad, sad that we reached that point. Yeah. It's sad that, uh, what will happen afterward? Like it was so disappointing for me, disappointing moment. Not that for me, I did not expect it. Uh, I mean, that moment that I, I, I didn't think it came from nowhere. It has. 75 years of cooking, but it was something that could have been avoided yeah. if we had if we had honest leaders. But also once it happened, I knew the Israeli side are not smarter than Hamas. I'm I, like, let's be honest. They're Hamas, uh, but uh, but in a, in a more modern way. So they will act like Hamas did. I knew it, and they have more capabilities than Hamas. I mean, if Hamas can kill 1,200 in one day, Israel can kill 10,000 if they want in one day, 20,000. And then you, you know, I, you know, like uh, the, the the blood was in, was in their lips, you know, and the, it's so scary because I knew people in Gaza. I know how much they love life, how much they never uh, chose to live under Hamas or to live under siege or to, to live in open air prison. Uh, their parents were born in an open air prison and and died in open air prison and their children would be the same and we also 
justified that and normalized that as this is their destiny and and nothing can be done about it and now they will be killed in masses and they will be displaced and they will be starved to death and i knew it will happen and i knew no one will be able to stop it because this is how it works in this particular conflict so this is maybe where i also made peace with the idea of death you know like uh, to die uh, is something now for any Palestinian, realistically, is something uh, so, 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 um, like the probability of it is so high that, you know, maybe we should make peace with it. And maybe this will give us the courage to do the right thing, you know, because, because, you know, you know, you know how bad it can get. And it's a moment of the truth. We have to question everything. We have to question internally, externally, who are our friends, who are our leaders, uh, how to deal with our enemy. We should put everything on the table because, you know, it's uh, it's the end, you know, the end is near. Like uh, it's our last chance to survive, uh, as I see it. Yeah, and you said, you know, um, also we can't go back to the, uh, October 6th reality either because obviously you shared to us what happened to you and your son uh, on your drive back home and that reality is also something that we cannot maintain and you know it's a question that a lot of people ask me and Amira as well is you know okay we're at this point in time how do we fix it like what's what's the right path forward in order to make sure that we don't maintain this reality that we have. And also we don't go back to the reality of October 7th, uh, October 6th. So how do we create a new reality in your eyes? You know, we we had our own uh, uh, ideas, uh, me and Amira, and we discussed it a lot. So I'm really curious to see or to hear from you what you, how do you envision the transition, at least definitely from within the Palestinian uh, society, uh, more so in the West Bank, because you're, you know, uh, that's your life. So you, you, you're embedded within your community. So how do you see it happening, maybe specifically on the West Bank front, Gaza, and then in general on a Palestinian uh, agenda? Yeah. Um, I think the Palestinian side, uh, people should uh, get out of their comfort zone and speak up. Uh, in the past, like the the loudest people were, you know, Hamas and Fatah and uh, their um, traditional uh, view of things. But there are so many people who think differently, not the same, but they think differently. And they think people should become more outspoken because the more voices on the table, the closer we are on the most realistic vision for the future. I think we also should um, free ourselves from taboos. Uh, we sh we should demand uh, a wider governance system than we have now. Now we have President Abbas and few um, advisors around him. Uh, even if they were the, the smartest people on earth, they cannot deal with this complex reality alone. And they sh their governance should expand to include other uh, political figures in Palestine uh, from from across the political spectrum. And this will not should not include Hamas uh, under this form uh, Hamas exists because I believe you know uh, anyone any Palestinian uh, leader should uh, commit to the Palestinian declaration of independence 
which talks about diversity and uh, respect of international systems and international laws. And even though Israel doesn't respect that, it, it, we shouldn't define ourselves of what Israel accepts and Israel doesn't accept. We Palestinians should accept um, and build a value system that is based on humanity, the wider humanity, international law, and uh, the national mechanism of, uh, of dealing with conflicts. Uh, because it is uh, the moral thing to do, and it is strategically what's good for Palestinians. But uh, unless the governance in the West Bank get more, uh, you know, uh, strengthened by adding more uh, diversity to to the leadership, we will not also see what will happen in Gaza. Because uh, if we need the same body to be able to govern Gaza, it has to fix itself. Um, by itself and should be a Palestinian initiative, shouldn't be imposed by Americans or Israelis or, or Europeans because they have different agenda. We should uh, do it in our own agenda so we can uh, take care of people after this tragedy, uh, the thousands of uh, orphans and uh, uh, the, you know, two million people in Gaza displaced now, the destruction in infrastructure, uh, you know, to recover from the trauma, to participate in any political process, hopefully will happen in the future. We need to, to fix the problems inside home. And I think uh, maybe, you know, asking for election is not realistic and I'm not calling for election, but at least, you know, the, these figures that we know, they all um, add um, interesting perspective and also come with interesting network to the table. And the, the more unity we have in Palestine, uh, the better it will be for Palestinians, but also the better we will be in the negotiation table with, with Israel and with the international community. So my next question to you is, and we had this conversation um, off, offline, um, if, if as a Palestinian in the West Bank, from the West Bank, looking at the actions of of Hamas and what happened on October the 7th. Do you think that they, um, I'm using very simple, um, detached from, from emotions, uh, like I'm gonna phrase it that way. Um, do you think Hamas achieved what it wanted to achieve? Do you think that Hamas won what they wanted to, to win? Um, and then I can also ask you, like, uh, if you wanna comment on the Israeli side of like, are, can they win or will they? Uh, what are the intentions? But I'm more interested, honestly, to know about your your opinions on if Hamas is achieved what it wanted to achieve. Um, so we, we don't know 100% what Hamas wanted to achieve, but my guess, they wanted to revenge from the, from the Israeli uh, identity, Israeli image of uh, being the, the strongest guys on this conflict. Um, they wanted to revenge, and I think Hamas leaders, you know, they had um, personal revenge from the Israeli army over the years of of being, you know, arrested and you know years in prison. And there are stories about Sinwar in prison, and and um, you know, in one story he tells um, the the interrogator that one day I will arrest you. Uh, you know, it is uh, it is not uh, it's very narrow minded way of victory for Hamas, which they cause 
massive pain to someone who thought no one can you know cause this to them um also Hamas created I think um irreversible damage in the what Israel used to be and Israel has to reinvent itself um to you know to recover from from what happened and I think Hamas wanted wanted to cause this damage to you know I think Hamas philosophy you can damage us we can damage you too like it's a it's okay in the game for them is lose lose uh, and they are in peace with the idea that they are losing but their focus is also to make the other side lose too so we will sink together like this is uh, how they see it and i think in this way they have succeeded the moment the israeli army and the israeli leadership started uh, and i think they always have been uh, operating on the same logic of hamas too because it's it's the way they see things like okay um if you send rockets to Astirot, 10 buildings in gaza will be destroyed like what's the vision behind this like what what what, what this way of uh, of dealing with conflict will will take us to where you know or like if your son does something we will demolish your house like the way israelis do in in the west bank like if one got a member like if one member of family uh, does an attack against uh, against Israel, the whole family will pay the price. You know, this is very, very backwarded, uh, stupid way of of managing security. Even you know, not not even talking about vigilance. So Hamas, who operates also in the same way, has succeeded in in dragging Israel to. A uh, very self-destructing way. Uh, Israel in Gaza now, um, not only killing thousands of Palestinians and destroying each single building and and the water and and everything, but also they're losing soldiers. Uh, they're losing uh, like huge amount of uh, injuries, and all these soldiers that survived will live uh, their the rest of their life with the traumas. Um, Hamas uh, is, will be, you know, sure that the future they can survive because the amount of anger and grief that exists in Gaza can uh, fuel Hamas uh, with the fighters for the rest of, uh, of of this century, you know, unless we do something about it. So Hamas as ideology is not an existential threat. Because it's not, it's like as long as the occupation exists and the people are angry and the idea is there, you can um, assemble Hamas in, in a couple of hours, you know. Uh, so Hamas is nothing such a threat. And uh, in their calculation, I think they have won. The people of Gaza have lost, the people of Palestine have lost, the people in Israel have lost. And it's up to us to take the agency and change the rule of the game. In the game of power and whoever, like the stronger eat the weaker, we will always lose. And if you have Ben Gavir, we will have Hamas. If the, rule, if the rules of the game change, uh, we will enable the wise voices to emerge and shape the, the future. I think that was a fascinating, fascinating uh, answer.
thank you so much. Maybe tell us a little Brain, do you have any other questions? Um, no, I think uh, like we covered a lot of the, you know, what we wanted to ask. I guess maybe one one last question would be uh, on the polls, because it's something that's, you know, it's been so talked about in the past few days. The yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, of 80% of the pa Palestinians uh, supporting a more supportive of Hamas. Um, and we actually talked about it yesterday in a, in a new podcast that is launching out. It's called The First Person, where me and Amira were... Uh, uh, host it so for all our audience uh, once it comes out you know we promise to uh, share that on our page as well and um, you know one of the things that I, me and Amira were discussing yesterday and I guess that was in my at least in my own view of the world is that you know potentially maybe at least from the West Bank perspective that the support is increasing because you're not in Gaza and when you're away from the, you know, the desperate situation and that desperation, you can be more, you know, um, militant about it in that perspective. Like, you know, they need to fight back and there's no other way. And the PA is corrupt. So that's the only path that we see. And we're we're not in Gaza. So we're not like having that, you know, like it's obviously a different kind of suffering. But I it's just a, sense, a feeling of mine is that when you're at that complete desperate position, like people in Gaza, and we've been talking to people of Gaza, in Gaza, and one of the people that I've been talking to recently, trying to help him to get out, he lost family members, personal family members, his sister, his nephews. But even he was talking about how, I don't care anymore. Even though I lost my family, my personal family, I just want to, like, we're in a position where I only can hope for one thing, is to just live and to provide life for the remaining of my family. I don't care in what constituency they want to do the this uh, peace agreement or two states or it's here, 100 meters there, the border. I don't care as long as we just end this conflict. And I'm curious, what do you think about that? Do you think the West Bank is more uh, supportive because they're detached from that horrors that the Gazans are, are, are suffering from at the moment? Or is just that the polls are incorrect altogether? How do you how do you how do you view that? I think partially it's true that uh, they are uh, far from uh, the direct consequences of this conflict, so they see it also only from the way of Hamas um, causing uh, high casualties on Israel and damage to their army, so they get excited about it, and they're not the one who are paying the price. Uh, also, there's a vacuum, there's the absence of vision um, to show people different way. Uh, they only listen to Hamas and no one else is talking. To, you know, like if there was a different way of, of seeing things and people outspoken about it, uh, this will also maybe appeal to some people. I think the worst are people who are living abroad and uh, they just get excited uh, on both pro Israel and pro Palestine. Uh, they, ha they have no skin in the game, their families uh, will not pay the price and their future is secure. So they get excited when their um, ideologies, you know, are in, in practice. So you see people in San Diego saying, yes, eliminate everyone in Gaza and they kill the Hamas. You know, they think Hamas is, uh, I don't know what, like you have to kill it and uh, it's over. Or the pro Palestine say, no, like never give up fighting, fight until the last. Uh... It's because they are not living in Gaza. 
I'm every time I want to interview. Before I want to interview, I asked friends in Gaza, what your position on these things? Because they have the agency to decide on Gaza. I mean, if they want to fight, not fight, it's their life. You know, I can't speak for them what they should do. And what I hear, as you said, people just want to live. People, this was their position before before October 7th also. I mean, we see the polls in Gaza before October 7th, Hamas had very, very small popularity. Uh, people of Gaza always were people who seek fun and party and uh, Gaza is, uh, had so many histories and lifestyles all over the years. The uh, people of Gaza were first to this box that we bought, like Israel and the international community bought them in that box, but they never uh, accepted that box. They just want to have fun and live and food and travel. Uh, they were not born to fight. You know? I think, again, I think we can talk to you for forever about this. You bring up things, uh, an angle that neither uh, Ibrahim or I uh, have experienced, but only can comment on from the sidelines. Um, is there anything we didn't ask you that you would like to talk about? Is there anything that you want, like this, we're giving you the the platform. Uh, this isn't uh, this isn't uh, like an interview with a media uh, with a known media outlet that just wants to like get things out. Is there anything you want to talk about? Something we didn't ask you? I think we covered everything. Uh, yeah, Great. I feel I said everything I know. <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. Um, do you have a message to anyone who, who's, who's listening to this? Um, like, what would you like to leave people with? Um, a message um, from from Hamza Wawdeb to English-speaking or English-understanding audience. Yeah, to the English-understanding audience. <laughs> um, if you want to be part of this conflict, please be part of the solution, uh, not part of the problem. Um, we have to think about the future. And honestly, whenever I personally uh, start processing something and I ask myself, okay, how I want to process it in a way um, that will contribute to a better future, I start to see things in different ways. It start to become not only about me and my feeling and my ideologies and whatever, start becoming about what is practically good for the future. And I wish uh, people uh, who I hope, you know, they care about both sides or at least one side and they care about their well-being and their future, to see this moment as a moment of honesty and moment of humanity and uh, stop uh, the game of uh, blame and shame and uh, focus on what's good for the future. So even when this shame and blame, they should do it in an honest way that, you know, if a civilian is killed in one side or another, they should speak up equally, you know, N not close an eye on one side and open an eye on the other side because this is our uh, way of starting to correct the reality that we have Inshallah. and if they don't want to live this way you know they're really adding uh, adding wants to our wants thank you so much for thank this you amazing, Hamza. amazing message yeah, yeah. Inshallah you know we 
all our efforts together along with other, you know, uh, uh, of our other uh, Palestinian uh, activist friends, you know, the three of us are not alone. And I know. We'll make sure to bring in more voices and we're really honored to have your voice here talking about, you know, future Thank Palestinian. Thank you for this genius initiative. Yeah, thanks really for the courage of doing this. I know it's not easy. Uh, practically also, it's not the right context for doing these things, but only because the context is not right, you you should do it, you know. This shouldn't happen in comfortable times. In the times like this, where it's more needed because people are paying attention. Absolutely. Okay, Hamza, shukran. Shukran kteer, kteer. Thank you so very much. Um, I'm sure that at, at some point in time, we'll have you back, hopefully in person, um, so we don't have the, the screens as a, as a barrier to 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 interact. We'll come we'll come to Italy. Yeah, yeah, and to see you maybe potentially one day in the Palestinian leadership. Your voice is so needed. Yeah. I want to see you, Prime Minister, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, have yeah. a free no secure pure palestinian state yes no pressure <laughs> i need the least uh, you know hard job in the, like minister of uh, i don't know tourism or... <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much okay. again thank you thank you have a nice day thank you bye hamza shukran bye. Okay, there you have it, everyone. That was uh, our conversation with Hamza Awabe, a Palestinian, um, a Palestinian peace activist from the West Bank, telling us his insights and everything and his experience, not just on October the seventh onwards, but also prior and previously. Um, we hope you you enjoyed. Uh, I think me and Ibrahim enjoyed it very much. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation. I know it was Do you want to end? stories that he said were incredible. Honestly, it just gave me goosebumps while I'm listening. And, you know, I don't want to stop him. It's just like, keep going, please tell us more. And hopefully we'll have him again in the future because Hamza's voice is, is truly, truly inspiring one. And we remind everyone that we don't need to agree. I'm sure this was a difficult conversation for, for someone that's listening, for some people that are listening, uh, but that shouldn't uh, deter us from, from actually having a conversation. Because like we always say, we uh, can disagree on the past, but we need to agree on the future in order to implement a better present. Um, and... Um, I think that's a great time for Ibrahim's uh, usual outro. <laughs> yeah, to remind everyone that at the end of the day, we all deserve better. <laughs>